Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you, want me to re- do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked him, them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own own clothes on him. Then they led him out to to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
which means, sorry, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him, comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. If any of you are wondering where the name Rufus comes from, um, we find it there in the scriptures. So it's one of the sons of Simon who carries the cross for Jesus. So that's where the biblical origin for Rufus is from. All right, so let me pray for us before we open up the scriptures and um, look at what exactly they mean for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you, Lord God, for uh, Mark and for what is written down. We pray, Lord God, that we would understand uh, these words and that they would change us who we are, Lord. Uh, we pray that we would be able to apply them into our hearts uh, and into our lives, Lord. Uh, we thank you. We pray that your spirit would be with us and we thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. So, well, the famous playwright and author Oscar Wilde back in the late 19th century, uh, in one of his final exams at university, uh, was, uh, what is it, as he was writing, uh, and so Oscar Wilde, by the way, is a bit of a tragic character, but he was a man with an incredible mind. Uh, so anyway, so as Oscar Wilde was given a t uh, writing his exam, he was given a text in ancient Greek to translate, which was a task he, he found pretty easy thing to do. He was a very smart man. The passage that he was given was the scene in the scriptures that we've just read from, the crucifixion. I'm not sure which gospel, but that's the scene he was given. So Wilde quite easily begins translating the passage and completes it fairly quickly. And the examiner said to him, you can stop now, Mr. Wilde, but he keeps on writing. After a while, they say, you can stop now, but he fervently keeps translating. Finally, the examiner said to him, Mr. Wilde, stop, you can stop. To which Oscar Wilde replied, I can't stop now, I want to see what happens next. Today's passage from Mark 15 is probably one of the best-known narratives of the Bible, the trial and execution of Christ. It is the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, what in many um, hero movies uh, today would probably be the final action scene uh, against the villain. This account in the gospels is sometimes called the passion, not meaning compassion, but a reference to the Passover meal, which has just been celebrated in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, giving it new meaning with the bread and wine now symbolising his own death. Over the past weeks in this series on Mark's Gospel, uh, we've been looking at the different things which Jesus did, what he said and how people have responded to him. The question that keeps hanging in the air is, who is this man? Who is this man? Everyone who encounters Jesus seems to be asking this question. Those he heals, those he teaches, his own disciples. Uh, it's the question that the reader, us, are somewhat left asking. 
Who is this man called Jesus from, who is from Nazareth, the lowly son of a carpenter, a relatively unknown man who is suddenly shot into the spotlight? Who is this man? In Mark 15, we see a culmination of everything Jesus has been telling about himself, the reason that he came that no one seemed to understand. We see the death of Jesus at the hands of a mob in a farce of a trial, the hands of an invading colonial pagan empire. The great teacher who's just days before been welcomed into the city of Jerusalem uh, as a king is being executed like a common criminal. This great man, the man who is going to change the world, dies in the most undignified, undignified way that was possible for the time, hanging naked and ridiculous on a cross. Maybe this king was not a king after all. Who is this man? Around the world today, Christians um, of all traditions are gathering to remember, grieve, and give thanks for the death of Jesus. The media around the world will be getting shots of Christians gathered uh, in prayer, reflection, and ritual. So when you turn on the TV tonight, you'll probably see things from cathedrals or from the Vatican, from your local church that the media have gotten shots of. But they won't be there because they are there to hear about the message of Jesus. It will be a spectacle at this uh, unusual group of people who gather to worship an executed convict. It's not too hard in Australia to find out about uh, Jesus. Just a quick Google search will tell you pretty much all you want to know. But the question still seems to be asked, who is Jesus? It's a question which Christians are asked every year at Christmas, Easter, every occasion that Christians celebrate their faith. Who was this man, Jesus Christ, and why does he matter? Those who are visiting with us today, this might be uh, a question which you are asking. Uh, this might be the important question you're asking. Who is this man, Jesus, and what did he say, and why does it even matter to you? Why does it matter 2,000 years later to you? In 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Followers of Jesus, those who call themselves Christians, are you prepared to answer why you have a faith in Jesus? Who do you say who Jesus is when you're talking to people? And why does he matter? So that's kind of the overarching question which we're going to be thinking about as we read uh, chapter 15 in Mark's Gospel. The question which has really been shaping this entire gospel. Today's passage, so in Mark 15, it's not a short one, and there are many sermons which could be written about this. So if you ever buy any um, Bible dictionaries or commentaries, there's stack loads of things which you can unpack in this passage. Today we're just going to do a bit of a sweeping look at it, uh, focusing on just a few sections. Uh, before we do that, let's quickly though recap what has happened so far in our series. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples and all those who followed to hear. Since arriving on the scene, Jesus has he's cast out demons, he's calmed a storm, he's healed the sick, he's raised the dead. He's been transfigured before Peter, John and James, appearing with Moses and Elijah. He has called children to him and blessed them. He has predicted his death. He enters into Jerusalem and is hailed as a king, 
the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus clears the temple of people, defiling it and forgetting God. He is anointed with oil by an unnamed woman, celebrates the Passover meal, instituting the Lord's Supper, and finally is arrested and then deserted by those who are meant to be his closest friends, with Peter denying he even knows Jesus. And now we are here where we are at the crucifixion and trial of Jesus. Jesus has been brought before Pilate after what really is a joke of a trial before the Jewish religious leaders. As Julian said on Sunday, they've been trying to stick any mud that they can on Jesus, any charge which will hold up. Finally, this is the charge for which Jesus is executed, looking at verses 2 and then at verses 12 to 15 in Mark 15. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So make no mistake that the reason Jesus is crucified is for the claim to be the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. It's a title that both the Jews and the Romans understand the threat of all too well. The, the Jews know this title now to be one for the promised Messiah, the long-awaited one who will bring judgment. The Romans see this as as a threat, uh, a rebe dangerous rebellion from a stubborn and troublesome dominion. And so they crucify him. When I was 16 years old, I don't know if anyone else um, remembers this as well, I can remember the film The Passion of the Christ, which was made by Mel Gibson. Does anyone remember that film? Every now and then it's up on TV, usually a bit later in the night. Uh, but it came to theatres around the world. Uh, it was an instant success with millions of people around the world going to see it. Everyone who saw it remarked on the bloody violence, pain and torture which Jesus endured. It was the main focus of the film, the gore and the horror of crucifixion. The film was very moving. It was probably quite accurate in many ways of its depiction of the brutality of crucifixion. But the film ultimately, it seemed to really miss the point of who Jesus is. Crucifixion is likely one of the worst means of execution. Probably one of the worst ways that the human mind has devised to kill someone. But the scriptures aren't actually really that focused on the crucifixion itself. The pain that Jesus suffered, however horrible, was likely no worse than any other man who was crucified and suffered under it. Under it. Thousands of people in the Roman world uh, would have faced this gruesome death. Mark simply records in verse 24, and they crucified him. That's all it really says about it. Everyone at the time, they knew what crucifixion was. It didn't need explaining. And what they did with the nails, and how they raised him up, how heavy the cross was. Uh, that, that's not really the focus of what Mark is focusing on here in this chapter. What is recorded is what happens to Jesus surrounding his crucifixion. There are two men who are highlighted. Firstly, 
is the release of Barabbas in verses 6 to 15. This man, Barabbas, he was a criminal. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. He was someone who was definitely deserving of death uh, and to face the full force of justice. Instead, he's released. The guilty is replaced with the innocent. The king replaces the criminal. An action which ultimately saves Barabbas. The second man mentioned is Simon in verse 21, who's really only very briefly mentioned, but he's well remembered. It says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Carrying a cross for those who were convicted uh, meant total condemnation. It was a sign for all that your life was forfeit. As you're walking down the street carrying your cross, it was a sign for everyone to see that your life was forfeit. Uh, You no longer had any rights. It was a visual cry out um, that you were a condemned man. Simon carries a cross for Jesus. The visual image here, it shouts out what Jesus commands us to do, to pick up our cross and follow him. This is what we are, so that is we are to abandon everything, forfeit our own life and follow him. These two men in many ways really epitomizes what it means to be a Christian. Like Barabbas, we are the guilty ones deserving death. Instead, Jesus takes our place. Simon is forced to carry a cross. And likewise, we are also called to carry our cross and follow Jesus, giving up all else and submitting to God's will. The next thing to notice in uh, this passage in Mark is to note that how the soldiers treat Jesus. Verses 16 to 20 say this. Verses 16 to 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Notice again that very little is really mentioned about the torture and the preparation of crucifixion for Jesus. Uh, Nothing's really said about the the whipping and the, the pain inflicted. Instead, what is highlighted are the things which are unique to Jesus. It's the mock homage that the soldiers pay Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews! Finally, Jesus uh, is receiving the recognition. So finally, I should say, Jesus is receiving the recognition for who he is, the king of the Jews. But it's an abomination of homage. It is cruel. It's twisted. The crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head, however painful they may have been, they were not recorded just to let us know about the suffering of Jesus but reflecting the sad coronation that Jesus was finally receiving. One of my favourite TV shows on Netflix, which maybe some of you enjoy, is 
The Crown, which is up to season four now. Uh, the series about the Queen from being a young woman and becoming sovereign and her life over the decades. The latest season, it's, it's finished focusing a lot on the life of Prince Charles, the next man to be king, who in, in this season, remember it's a TV show, uh, but he's really presented as quite an unlikable antagonistic character. However, for all the dislike and poor press uh, that Prince Charles might receive, I'm fairly sure he's not expecting to receive uh, the sort of reception that Jesus did to becoming king. It's not the way he's expecting when finally he becomes king, however long Her Majesty lives for, when he finally becomes king, this is not the sort of coronation he's expecting to get. Uh, this is not the way kings are meant to be received. It is not how they are treated and paid homage. Being a king, no matter how unliked you are, is a position of honour, it's a position of dignity, and to be treated with the utmost respect. Not so for King Jesus. The Roman soldiers, they're of course, they're not honouring Jesus, they're ridiculing him, and all the Jewish people on top of it. To them, this Jesus fellow, they just tip, he just typified how ridiculous the Jewish people are. A peasant king who's been arrested and is about to be killed. To the Romans executing Jesus, it's one big joke. It's hilarious to them. Look at this peasant who's meant to be a king. Now we're going to kill him. It's hilarious to them. It's one big joke at the expense of the Jews. And it's another opportunity also to suppress any thought of rebellion. Remind those Jewish people who are in charge. The irony, of course, is that Jesus is king. He is the king of the Jews. This is the charge laid against him and is nailed above his head. Jesus is finally being recognised as king, but he's been rejected by his own people, abandoned by his followers, and despised by the world. So why does Mark record these things? Why does he take particular note of them? They are historical events. So that's one thing to point out. Mark's recording them because they are historical events. But they're recorded, obviously, for more than that. They are to point to who Jesus is and, importantly, how he fulfills the scriptures. It's not just, it's not just coincidental symbolism that is occurring, but fulfillment of scriptures hundreds of years old. Uh, I'll read out a few quickly for you. Psalm 41 shows Jesus being deserted. It says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Uh, the wine offered to Jesus is also fulfilled. Psalm 69, They put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Isaiah 50 shows that Jesus is beaten and ridiculed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Mark is not simply just recording history. He is showing history being fulfilled. That Jesus truly is the one who is sent by God, the awaited Messiah and Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven, which Julian spoke about on Sunday. Potentially the biggest fulfilment is one which Jesus directly quotes himself and references, as we read earlier. Uh, in verses 33 and 34 of our passage, it says this, 
At noon, darkness came over the land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting um, Psalm 42, uh, 22. Sorry. This is the psalm which Jesus is thinking about as he is dying. The words, why have you forsaken me? A word, words which strike quite deep. Forsaken. Uh, it's a bit of a yodi word now to use. We don't really say forsaken too often, and maybe some of its meaning uh, is a bit forgotten. But it means, essentially, to be utterly abandoned. The expression sometimes used is God-forsaken, by which we mean separated from all light, life, and hope of existence. I can remember... Uh, when I was flying overseas uh, several times, taking a flight and go from Devonport to Melbourne and then Melbourne to wherever next you're going to uh, as I was heading to Europe. And on the plane, you know how you usually have the little television screen, the little screens in front of you. You can watch TV, you can watch films, all that good stuff uh, for however many hours you're on the plane. But you can also click on map and it shows you whereabouts the plane is up to, very slowly moving across. Uh, so after about six hours of flying and getting quite bored, it's amazing how slowly the time passes, uh, I decided I'll have a look at the map and see where we're up to on the flight. And after six hours, we were still flying across Australia. We hadn't even left the country yet. Uh, but I was looking where we were, and we were probably flying somewhere around the Simpson Desert. And I can remember just thinking, in a rather morbid way, which probably everyone who's ever been on a flight has done, I was thinking, if we were to crash here, if the plane were just to fall out of the sky and land, uh, and we survived, of course, how utterly helpless things would be. We'd be in the middle of a desert, which goes on for hundreds of kilometres. Nothing to sustain us, or to help us, or to protect us. In many ways, we would be God-forsaken. Nothing there to help you or save you. Jesus cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? Is this the cry of a desperate man? If God has forsaken Jesus, has he been rejected by God? And is our salvation through his death kind of hopeless? Has Jesus given up hope in God? Should you give up hope in God? The line which Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 is just the opening words. The psalm goes on to say much more and tell us about the hope and salvation that Jesus puts in God. Let me read again from um, Psalm 22, which says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And jumping down a few verses. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to me. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it.
even in utter despair, even in utter helplessness, being ridiculed, torture, and waiting to die, Jesus knew that salvation comes from God. He knows that God hear him, hears him, and he remains faithful and submits to God the Father. Jesus suffers separation from God so that you and I don't have to. Jesus is forsaken so that you and I can be close to God. It is only when the work of salvation is done that sin is paid for does Jesus give his last breath. The scene finishes with these words being spoken in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus was no ordinary man. Jesus suffers the pain of bruises, whips and nails, but this isn't what is unique about him. Jesus was the Son of God. He came down to earth to be amongst his people. This should have been a moment of great celebration and joy, receiving God amongst mankind, which had not happened since the Garden of Eden. Instead, his people reject and kill him. Jesus is the king who submits to his Father in heaven and dies. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus died? Why does it matter that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises? And why should you put your trust in him? Why should you follow and trust and devote your life to this man? Because ultimately, if Jesus isn't who he claims to be and did all the things the Bible says, and if you are not following him, then you are not saved. If Jesus is not who he says he is, you're not saved. You're still in your sin. And the punishment which Jesus faced, being forsaken from God and all that is good in the next life, will be faced by you. Many of you here will already have put your trust in Jesus. For a long time, you'll have called Jesus Lord. But there are, of course, are many who we know who haven't or don't anymore. Friends, uh, colleagues, family members, sons, daughters, brothers and sisters, our parents who do not yet know Jesus. Easter is a great time to remember that we are saved. But it also points out so starkly that there are so many others who need to be saved as well. So what can you do? What can you do? While you sit together for a meal with your family uh, and you try to have that you know, kind of awkward conversation maybe with those family members about the importance of Easter, what hope can we have of success? So I know many people here have tried for years and years to have that conversation and it is hard and it is sad and it's disappointing to try and have those conversations and not see success. So what can we do? Like Jesus, we can pray Psalm 22. When there is utter darkness and hope is gone, when there is nothing that we can do to change things, we trust in God to save. We don't always understand God's ways. We don't always know how he works and why sometimes that there are people who aren't saved. But we know that God is the source of all salvation and that it comes from him. So pray fervently. Pray hard. Pray like their lives depend on it. 
Because in many ways it does. Pray this Easter weekend that people will remember the death of Jesus, not just as a historical event, but the event that changed history and gave us the way to salvation. Let me close by again reading from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Now ancestors, uh, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die in the place that we deserve to be in. We thank you that you have saved us, not just for this world, but for the next, that our sins are wiped out. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you submitted to death on a cross and took away all the judgment which we deserve to face. Bless us this Easter, that as we pray, that we would remember you, Lord God, and all that you've done. Be with us as we talk to our friends and our family and our colleagues about what it is that we believe and that they too might have the hope that we have. We thank you, Lord God, that this hope is only found through you, Lord Jesus. That is nothing that we do, nothing which we can contribute that saves us, but is only by your death and your mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, 